Good afternoon. Welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is John Samples. I'm director of the Center for Representative <coughs> Government here at the Cato Institute. Uh, and I would like to welcome you again to our book forum today for this book, Free Market Fairness by our author, John Tomasi. Um, as you may know, if you've been to book forums before here at Cato, we will have presentations by our author, by a commentator, and then that will be followed by um, a question and answer session in which you can pose your questions to the author or to, to his commentator today, or indeed anyone you want to. The, uh, after that, around 1.30 or so, we shall have lunch, uh, and those of you who have been coming to the old Cato Institute, I have to say welcome to our new digs here and the Policy Center. We will be having lunch on the second floor at the George M. Yeager Conference Center. That's again on the second floor. We have to go upstairs for that. And you proceed to the large spiral staircase, which you can't miss. The restrooms are on the second floor also on the way to lunch and look for the yellow wall on the right. I wanted to uh, discuss this uh, very important book a little bit and give us some framework for talking about and thinking about uh, what, what John Tomasi is going to talk to us about today. There's another book out now that has attracted a lot of attention, as I'm sure this book will, uh, by a man named John Haight called The Righteous Mind. And I want to quote a couple of passages which I think provide some context for the Tomasi book from the Haight book. Uh, Haight says, quote, the political left in America and elsewhere tends to rest most strongly on the care, harm, and liberty oppression foundations. These two foundations supports ideals of social justice, which emphasize compassion for the poor and a struggle for political equality among the subgroups that comp comprise society. Social, social justice movements emphasize solidarity. They call for people to come together to fight the impression of bullying, domineering elites, unquote. And another place, then, hate continues. Quote, libertarians care about liberty, almost to the exclusion of all other concerns. Liberty, for them, is the right to be left alone, free from government interference, unquote. Now, it is widely understood and widely thought here and elsewhere that these, and quoting myself here, that these two foundations of morality, the libertarian one and the uh, one that underlies the political left, appear forever at odds. One of the dividing lines, indeed, of our government, our politics, perhaps even our civilization. Our author today, John Tomasi, thinks in some important way that they can be reconciled. Hence, as the title says, Free markets and fairness, free market fairness. And that is why we wanted him to, to come here on, and talk about this very important book. John Tomasi is professor of political science and philosophy at Brown University. He's the founding director of Brown's Political Theory Project, a research center devoted to the study the free society. J John studied political philosophy at Oxford Society, uh, Oxford University, under the supervision of the usual suspects. I, I, that's him, not me, adding that. Uh, perhaps you'll tell us what that means, John. I think I, think I know. Uh, simultaneously, however, and on his own time, he also studied libertarianism at the Institute for Humane Studies at George Mason University under the guidance of Walter Grinder, Leonard Liggio, Ralph Reiko, Tom Palmer, Randy Barnett, David Schmidt, and many others. I know these people. Me too. <laughs> 
The, uh, and this is John's new book, and I would like for you to ask, to give him a warm welcome here at the Cato Institute. Uh, thank, thank you, John, and thanks to all of you um, for coming out uh, today. Um, it is a pleasure for me to be um, at the Cato Institute talking about free markets, and especially be talking about free markets in the context of a moral concern for fairness. So here I go. Um, for many years, for decades, the train of liberal philosophizing has lain in a deep freeze. Um, uh, the, the divide among philosophers, between these two camps of philosophers, mirrors our divide in our popular politics, a divide between parties of roughly left and right. As I think of it, there's a C with two camps on each side. The C, as, as things got cold between the two groups philosophically, the, the C thickened and froze. There's a wind now, a cold wind blowing across that icy expanse between the two camps and not much communication can occur across that divide. Off one coast, we have the, on the academic conception at least, the academically beleaguered, beleaguered camps of the classical liberals and the libertarians. On that camp, off that coast, they are, I picture them sort of hunkered down in the ice in their tents, their tattered tents with the winds blowing, but they got some pretty strong stakes that they're sure of and they pounded them in real deep. They're hunkered down, they're not going nowhere, no matter how cold that wind blows. They defend limited government, strong private economic liberties, and they are highly skeptical of any kind of calls for social justice. That, philosoph that philosophical camp provides the, the under undergirding, I suppose, for popular movements like the Tea Party. Off the other coast is, are the, the, the rival camp, the material or egalitarian, or as they like to call themselves, the high liberals. I like that name, so I'm going to give it to him. <laughs> That's, this is the academically luxurious camp. It's the dominant camp academically. They have, not tents, but I suppose igloos with um, faux furs. Faux, of course. And there are heaters, and it's, you know, it's, very, it's very cozy over there. Their battle cry, their battle cry is social justice. And they advocate an expanse of government, expansive powers, especially in economic affairs, in pursuit of that important and lofty moral ideal. They are extremely skeptical of private economic liberty, and they are especially skeptical of the distributions of goods that emerge through the free, free, free exercise of economic liberties. They, this is the group that provides the under, underpinning, I suppose, for some elements at least, of the Occupy this and that movement. This divide, this popular divide, is not merely a divide, it's not really a dispute about institutional questions. Beneath the institutional questions, that's a dispute about social justice versus economic liberty, there's a line of philosophy, and it runs to a really naughty problem. And as I see it, here's one camp. This is the camp of the classical liberals and libertarians, the tattered camp. So this is the group that advocates. So the classical liberals, by classical, I mean people like Frederick Hayek, um, Richard Epstein, Milton Friedman. These are people who think economic liberty is extremely weighty value, and yet they sometimes allow, for reasons they don't always explain very well, economic rights to be curtailed to pursue other sort of social goods. For example, they allow Adam Smith, they allow public support for education in various ways. Their politics is economic liberty, not as an absolute, 
but has an extremely weighty value that's going to limit the scope of government in a powerful way. The reasoning, is, it, this varies, but just to simplify, they tend to be consequentialist. Many of them are economics, economists. Their reasoning is utilitarian, consequentialist, or as I say, ends directed. They think that the person, now this is important, these are the stakes for the camp, by the way. They think that the person, the moral conception of the person on which political life is built, and on which political arguments are run, as being something like a, a maximizer of happiness, or if you like, a utility seeker. Right next to them, you know, their, their comrades, are even another camp of the libertarians. Um, I don't know, pick your favorite. <laughs> Murray Rothbard, maybe Ayn Rand, um, Robert Nozick, philosophically. They also have a good economic theory, but as absolutes, more or less. Their reasoning tends to be naturalistic. That is, they think what people are like in the state of nature, roughly Lockean, but with a Kantian twist. And the base of their view is something like, what's a person? How do we start political conversations? Well, a person is a self-owner, owning themselves, owning labor too. Bum, 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 bum. You know that story. On the other side, as I said, are the happy ones. Because they're winning in the academy. <laughs> Things are good at the high levels. They, these are people, the best, of course, is John Rawls. Uh, he's a good person, we know, we're told. And he has this really deep concern for other people, too. Their battle cry is social justice in the way that minimizes the importance of economic liberty. Their reasoning, now, in an interesting part, their reasoning is constructivist or deliberative. They think that the way to understand what we should do, how we should do politics together, we understand the norms that should guide and use to evaluate our political life, is by asking questions about what we owe each other, what people owe each other, as democratic citizens. So rather than starting with the idea, for example, Nozick's idea, of people have self-owners, and then spinning politics out of that, they start with the idea that what people are, are creatures who are, in some sense, committed to living with each other in ways that respect each other. Respect each other as free and equal, self-governing agents. Again, many of these people claim Locke for their inspiration. Locke talks about people as children of God being free and equal by nature. And in some sense, if you want to do some twisting with Locke, this, run, this can be run out of Lockean foundations. It's a very important point for the, according to the high liberals. Notice that if, because this is the way things are set up philosophical among the philosophers, debates over these questions about politics get cashed out as debates over what the morally appropriate way of thinking about a person is. And even when philosophers claim to be having conversations across that windswept divide, between this conception and this conception, they all know in the back of their minds that if they lose and one of these sides change, and if one of these sides starts to win rather than the other one, then this side over here is going to lose too. So these supposedly clean philosophical conversations about morality are always ideologically infected with the fact, with the awareness that if you abandon the self-ownership thesis, God save you. You're down here and here and never more up there, and vice versa, though that's probably less likely to happen, alas. This is most dramatic, this sharp divide is most dramatic, I think, among graduate students. Graduate students arriving on the scene for the first time, they say, well, lo and behold, most of my professors like mine at Oxford are all this, or even more, you know, socialists, like most of my professors were socialists. And they know, early on, you gotta choose, right? You can't just like, be this kind of sometimes, this, no, you gotta like, Pick one of these lines and stick with it. The classical people like me, when I was a grad student, who were inclined to economic liberty, 
and, and enthusiastic about individual freedom, we get whisked off on dog sleds in the direction of this little tattered camp over here, dogs like provided by you know, the Institute for Humane Studies or perhaps the ISI. And when we get, as we approach the camp, we might get to choose, well, you know, now that you're really close, you get these guys up, they're really close, you can choose, you know, you want Hayek or you want Nose, the guy was like Hayek and stuff, but you know, so, another that's of course, the more dominant ones say, oh, I want a successful career? Baby. That's where they all are. And they hop on a, put them on the dog side, they're hopping on a high-powered snow machine, right? They got heated seats, the works, and they're just powering up, up, up to the camp of the high liberals. In the state of affairs, then, there's not much compromise between the two camps. Economic liberty or social justice. Capitalism or democracy. Hayek or Rawls. The Tea Party or Occupy. Free markets or fairness. I doubt it. <laughs> so on to that bleak scene. I've written a book where I try to disrupt the orthodoxy. And as I think of it, as a I start as a classical liberal. And I got my, on my icebreaker, and I go across the sea to this conception of the person. And when I arrive there, I bump it hard. By bumping it hard, I try to break up the ice beneath the feet of the social democrats. Now, as a fellow social democrat, I invite them to have some more fresh conversations with me about what it really means to respect each other as free and equal self-governing agents. If they want to have law as their foundation, more power to you. Let's play that seriously now. If you want to take seriously the idea that we owe each other respect as free agents, all of us respect as free agents, what does that mean we should come up to politically? So my idea is cross the divide, go here and join them and see what we get. Look at it with fresh eyes and see what we get. And I ask questions that had not been asked much among the people over here for reasons I'll describe in a moment. In particular, is deliberative democracy really a vehicle that can only make left turns. It's not. It's not. <laughs> Do we really best respect our fellow citizens by imposing constraints on their economic liberties? We don't. So I develop a theory of liberal justice that I call free market fairness that tries to combine economic liberty and social justice. It combines the uncombinables, democracy and capitalism, Rawls and Hayek, Occupy and Tea Party, free markets and fairness. So, how do we get this? So this is what I'm after. I'm gonna go here, ask new questions like I said, and then start running out and see what we get. We're gonna get something kind of strange, but I don't know, I hope you like it. <laughs> you might not. So to get a theory of social justice combined with economic liberty, <coughs> done, done it this way, you need two things. First, you need a democratic argument for strong private economic liberties of the sort that will constrain government in ways I described a moment ago. That is, rather than getting strong economic liberties by the usual path, one of these ways, you see if we can get them this, on this path. That's the first thing you need. It's going to be a big one if you can get that. Because a lot's going to flow once you have that. If we're going to need a conception of social justice, which I think you do, which I'll say why in a minute, you have to have a conception of social justice that's compatible with affirming strong private economic liberties. So whatever this conception of social justice is, this way of being concerned for the poor, let's say, it has to be compatible with affirming very strong private economic liberties of capitalism. How can we get that? 
just again quickly. There's this concept. It's a tough word, but I'm going to use. I'm going to go to England for reasons that I still worry about. They have social justice. We call it, we could call it justice. That's what I prefer. But I'm going to do social justice for some reasons I'll describe. And what's happened, it seems to me, is that in the 20th century, especially, we had some very brave people, heroes of the left, who argued against the classical liberals that formal equality is not enough. We also have to worry about the work of liberties. That is, these brave heroes argue that liberalism should be refigured to care about the least well-off, and we should get social justice. Alas, and they had a conversation together, which was on for a long time, about what, that, what the exact structure of social justice should be. Alas, the people who had that conversation with each other, those heroes, all had the same basic background ideology. That is, they all thought that economic liberty was not a very important thing. In fact, a lot of them don't like economic liberty. So they had a conversation of free deliberation in a kind of an echo chamber. So unsurprisingly, they came up with a conception of social justice, which is we all think of it as social justice, which has, interestingly, distinctively leftist ide uh, ideological bent to it, big time. I'm interested in the idea that maybe that's just an accident of history. And now perhaps it's a chance to sort of broaden the debate, get some people with some new intuitions in part, part of the conversation, bust open the windows of the echo chamber, and find out this whole, possibly a whole other range of what I call market democratic interpretations of social justice. So here briefly are the two steps of the other argument. So what's social justice? Here's an account. Justice is fairness. We should regard it as the most desired order of society, the one we would choose if we knew that our initial position in it would be determined purely by chance, such as the fact that our being born into a particular family. That's a conception of justice based not on natural rights, but on something like a concern for fairness, a concern for fairness owed to people as citizens, as free and equal self-governing agents. The idea is that we think about an original position in which we can select principles of justice behind a kind of a veil of ignorance. And behind that veil of ignorance, we would pick principles that, because we chose them that way, would model our concern to treat everyone fairly. Would model our concern to live in a society in which every single person who was willing to work and try would be treated as respected equal among every with everybody else. You could also, of course, do, it, do justice a different way. You could go to the self-ownership way. But there's a certain moral attraction, I think, to this conception of fairness. And a theory of justice built from this conception of fairness. I'm just curious, for anyone who's not, read my, or is not reading my book, and also has not been reading the Cato Unbound blog over the last couple of weeks, anyone in that category here, do you know who developed this conception of justice as fairness? you know who this is? Any philosophy geeks in the room? It's, it's Frederick Hayek. So in 1940, <laughs> Everyone thinks it's Rawls, right? In 1940, Frederick Hayek was in London. London's being bombed. And Hayek says, well, he wants to send his children someplace safe. And he got them thinking. He got them thinking, well, where should I send my kids? That's the first question. But then more generally, what would be the right way to think about a fair society? And Hayek says that, you know, thinking about it, you really, a fair society would be, would be a place that you would think you would go to, go to not knowing who you might be. And so Hayek developed this idea. He didn't call it justice as fairness, but it's modeling fairness. And this is his formulation of what he thinks a just society would look like, or at least that's the way we should go about finding the principles of a just society. Much later, this was in 1940, right? Much later, in 1971, Rawls published a book called A Theory of Justice, which he talked about the original position and the veil of ignorance, as someone was saying. Rawls made it famous. 
we <laughs> classical liberals were taught on our little dog sleds through the years, you must attack Rawls, but you know what? Behind Rawls, if you know your history, we know our history, our family history, there's Hayek's formulation. What does it yield, though? If you approach justice this way, what are we going to get? And I'm not saying, by the way, that Hayek always does it this way. Hayek does a variety of interesting things, but this is a striking formulation from Hayek. What does it yield? And more particularly, which list of rights does this approach yield as basic? If you approach the problem of how we should live together this way, the Hayekian way, the Rawlsian way, what basic rights come out of it? And second, what account, if any, of distributive justice comes out of it? Let me tell you. One of the things that comes out of this account, it seems to me, are a strong set of economic liberties. By economic liberties, I mean, by economic liberty, I mean liberties that protect independent economic activity, liberties of working, liberties of owning. Traditionally, as I expect most of you know, within the liberal tradition, economic liberties, liberties were thought to be among the most important rights of people. This is basic to the American founders, for example. But starting in about 1850, this important change started happening within liberal, some quarters of liberalism. So John Stuart Mill, writing in the 1850s, says, look, economic activities, we may need them so we can get some stuff, but they're not, they're not, they're not really express who we are. Economic activities are not part of freedom. It's not part of a, a well-lived human being to engage in this kind of bourgeois activities of striving, of saving, of planning. That stuff is not part of the appropriate life for a good person. A little bit later, John Maynard Keynes, writing in 1930, wrote this brilliant, brilliant little essay called Economic Possibilities for Our Grandchildren, in which Keynes predicts that within 100 years, societies will have grown roughly eight times wealthier, apparently a fairly astonishingly accurate prediction, depending how you, if you ask McCloskey, it's different, but roughly right. And Keynes says, when that happens, when we become eight times wealthier, the economic problem will have been solved. And once the economic, once that day has arrived, those things we used to call virtues, those bourgeois virtues, will be revealed for being the pathological, neuro the, the morbid neuroses that they always actually were. So Lord Keynes looked down his long nose at those traditional American values of hard work, of saving, of trying to get your family ahead, of doing those things to move your career economically speaking. So to in 71, John Rawls finally more formally says, among the basic rights of liberties, <coughs> economic liberties will be pared down so they're hardly on the list at all. That makes, that makes liberalism available to, develop, to be developed in a fully socialistic way. So those dominant high liberal conceptions I talked about, and many of my teachers in graduate school, were trying to work out conceptions of liberalism in a socialist concept. They thought that was the highest form of, highest form of liberalism. If only we could get there, alas, there will be these feasibility constraints. But morally speaking, that's the brightest star. But it seems to me, again, that that argument, that this kind of choosing position, that, that if asked to choose this, that people would choose a society where economic liberties were not protected, is an extremely controversial thesis. Only if you assume, like the people in that echo chamber assumed, that people don't really care about these kind of choices, that these choices are not part of their lives in some essential way, that ordinary people are not, in fact, defined, don't think of themselves as being defined, by the choices they make and the successes they have in the economic realm. Only assume all those aristocratic assumptions. Can you use this procedure and get the answer they want? And just briefly, as I describe in the book, 
when people were working this out, when people were working out that conception of the unimportance of economic liberty, people like Keynes, they had the assumption that as societies got wealthier, people would come to care less and less about their economic liberties. Most observers observe that roughly the opposite seems to have happened. As societies have become wealthier, people have more opportunities to make choices about the composition of their particular lives. And ordinary working class people, not just the elites, even now even some of the elites, but ordinary working class people seize upon those opportunities with relish. Um, that's why there's some stubborn resistance to taxation, not just for greedy reasons, but also for this kind of moral idea that people somehow sense inchoately that there's something important about being able to decide for yourself how much you save for retirement, to, to decide for yourself what kind of health insurance you buy, whether you buy any at all, and what it's going to be like. Those kinds of decisions of taking out of our hands in some sense pacify us, treat us as children, and people choosing this way would be concerned about those things They would not choose a system that would allow socialism. They would choose a system, I think, and I argue in depth, technically in the book, of economic liberty. What about the next part? What a kind of distributive justice. There's a little idea here that's really important. It's going to sound strange, but I'm just going to give it to you anyway, because it's important to work this thing out. What's justice a property of? When we say something is just or unjust, or socially just or unjust, what's the thing that we're talking about? One thing it could be about, one thing that justice, the word justice could be a property of, is institutions. That is, institutions, whole institutional systems, could be called just or unjust, or socially just or socially unjust. A different thing which could be called just or unjust is not institutional structures, but something like particular distributions. That is, you might think, some people have thought, if you take a snapshot of society, America right now, click, and look at all the distributions. We ask, you might ask in this approach, is that distribution just or unjust? Among philosophers, it's pretty clear that viewing justice that latter way is an incoherent, very difficult, and worrying way to approach justice. So almost all political philosophers who work, all left political philosophers who work on social justice, adopt the idea that social justice is essentially a property of institutions. We might ask what the long-range tendency of institutions are distributionally, but justice is not a property of individual distributions. <coughs> it's important to see that difference. If you're, having a, if you're worried about social justice and worried about some person coming into the Cato Institute to advocate for social justice or free market fairness, it may be because you suffer from a, a malady that I call social justiceitis. People who have social justiceitis, this kind of scratching when people start talking about social justice, they have it, I think, because they worry, incorrectly, that a commitment to social justice means a commitment to evaluating particular distributions as being just or unjust. And if you do use justice that way, there's reason to scratch and worry and break out into hives. Because that conception of social justice, as, as a property of distributions, probably would require the state to constantly intervene on the free choices people make so as to correct the distributions, so as to conform to the initial pattern. Notice this critique of Rawls. You know, <coughs> Rawls didn't say that. And in a stunning passage in Hayek's book, The Mirage of Social Justice, Hayek notes on page 100, that he and Rawls agree on the essential point about justice, the essential point being that justice is a property, not of distributions, but of institu institutions looked at holistically and over time. Huge point. Hayek understood Rawls. Nozick, Rawls's hallmate and acclaimed philosopher, misunderstood him big time. And Hayek also notes, by the way, that, and as some of you may have seen the video where 
Hayek's interview by James Buchanan about that point, where he says, I agree with Rawls, what can you mean by that? It's a fantastic YouTube video. Look up Hayek and Buchanan, you'll, you'll, you'll enjoy it, it's four, five minutes. Hayek says correctly that in his early papers, Rawls was really clear and strong on that point. He got fudged about it later on, but that was the, the deep points of his view made that very clear. Now, if you have to look about, if justice is a property of institutions, then we think about social justice, we ask holistic, long-term questions about how, how institutions function. And what should the exact principle be when we evaluate a whole stru social structure, a whole social and economic structure? Looking at that, that thing, asking whether it is just or unjust, long-term, on average, and so on. Well, Rawls says, here's his line, justice requires that we have institutions that tend to maximize the benefits to the lowest paid workers. So the lowest paid workers, not just surfers, or bums, or prof well, professors, uh, workers, <laughs> you know, whatever. Another story. Um, <laughs> the people who work, lowest paid wage laborers, that, that we should maximize the benefits to them. That's his formulation. Knows, uh, Rawl, Hayek's formulation is slightly differently, I think actually more sophisticated in some ways, is this. The just society is the one whose institutions long-term over time, holistically, maximize the probability that any person living there can use her own information in pursuit of her own ends. He does it in different ways, but, or can effectively do that, if you like. Something like that. The basic idea, though, in both those formulations, the Rawlsian one and the Hayekian one, of these formations of social justice, is that justice requires that we have institutions that in a long-term holistic way benefit everyone who's willing to work and contribute. Others who aren't willing to, no comment about them, but those who are willing to work, the most just society is a society that will most benefit those workers over time. So free market fairness, the view that I develop and defend in the book, has two main principles. The first principle says, among the basic rights of liber and liberties of people, the inviolable basic rights and liberties of people, are a, strong, are, are a strong set of private rights of capitalism. These are among the basic rights. They're not the only ones. They don't trump everything else. It's not Maria Rothbard. But they're among the most basic ones. Second, the most just society, holistically, over time, is the one that maximizes the bundle of material wealth personally controlled by the lowest paid laborers. That institute, that institution which satisfies that, I argue, I try to show, is a lean, fast-growing economy that eschews these patrician ideals of closing down the economy so we can all just worry about these happy distributive questions together, so long as, you know, Keynes gets to decide, but rather as a society where we have a spontaneous order growing, where human creativity is unleashed, where there's an environment and rules which encourage individuals to be creative, to use their creative capacities and their entrepreneurial ideas to the benefit of everyone, where everyone's talents are channeled in such a way and encouraged in such a way that we have a dynamic growing economy in a way that benefits everyone who's willing to labor and be part of it. I'll close with this thought. I mentioned before that most of my teachers in, in grad school and most of my colleagues at Brown and across the, <laughs> across the academy think that morally speaking, the best way to, for people to live together, the morally best way to live together, would be some kind of socialism. But the problem is it's simply a matter of feasibility constraints. We can't get there, but only if we could. I think that's fundamentally wrong. Morally speaking, the socialism is bankrupt, never mind its possibilities, it is a morally bankrupt ideal. But related to that idea, that socialism is the bright star way off to the left, is another idea, more distinctive to American politics, and it's playing out yet again in the current election cycle. And that idea goes something like this. 
if you care about justice, if you care about social justice, and we sincerely want to make America more fair, a more socially just place, we should all work hard to make America more like the European social democracies. That's what we would do if we really cared about social justice. I'm proposing an alternative way of thinking about this. I think that within traditional American values, traditional American ideals of limited government, strong economic freedom, and a genuine concern for opportunities for all people from all parts of the world, if they're willing to work and be part of the society, that there's an ideal within traditional American values, a conception of fairness, a conception of social justice that's equally as attractive to the social democratic one, and in fact, I think, is morally more attractive. I call it justice is fairness, but I don't mind if people give it a more informal name, call it social justice, American style. Thank you. Again, the book is Free Market Fairness by John Tomasi. Look for it uh, everywhere books are sold. Um, I'm glad John reminded me. I'm, uh, I'm now my uh, colleague Jason Kuznicki an uh, apology. Jason's the editor of Cato Unbound. If you go to cato.org on the web, you can find found Cato Unbound. Each month, a new issue is taken up, and the questions of free market fairness and related issues is the current month's uh, uh, set of questions, where you can find a lead essay by John uh, that John co-authored, and then uh, follow on more commentary about these issues. Um, today, John's a good friend of uh, the Cato Institute, and we're having another John who is also a good friend of Cato. John Hasness will be our commentator. John is an associate professor of business at the McDonough School of Business at Georgetown University, he, and also he's been a visiting associate professor of law at Georgetown University Law Center, where he teaches courses in ethics and law. Uh, John has taught at many, course, uh, many law schools, uh, in a visiting or uh, professorial capacity, not only Georgetown, but also Duke University, George Mason, American University, and he's been a Law and F Humanities Fellow at Temple University School of Law. He's also visited at uh, pro uh, preeminent uh, uh, institutes uh, at the Kennedy Institute of Ethics in Washington at Georgetown, and uh, Social Philosophy and Policy Center in Bowling Green, Ohio. Many of you may know that. John received his BA in philosophy from Lafayette, his JD and PhD in legal philosophy from Duke, and his LLM in legal education from Temple Law School. Between 1997 and 1999, uh, John Hasness served as assistant general counsel to Coke Industries in Wichita, Kansas. His scholarship concerns ethics and white collar crime, jurisprudence, and legal history. Uh, Cato has published his book, which I would ask you to look for, Trapped, uh, subtitle, When Acting Ethically uh, is Against the Law. I'm, I'm delighted to have John here. John and I go back and forth when we see each other. I'm always stimulated by what he has to say, challenged, um, and probably eventually one of these days persuaded. So, John Hasness. Thanks very much. That was a very hopeful introduction. Um, <clears throat> It's a, sort of a conventional practice when you comment on a book to begin by saying what a great book it is before you go on and evaluate it. And I never do that. And the reason why I never do it is if I encounter a book that I think is a really, really good book, when I say that I want it to have some credibility. 
And this book is a, a very important book, which it's easy for me to recommend to all of you. Uh, John's written a great book. That's not because I think everything in it is right. That's not the standard of a great book. He's written a book that asks wonderful questions. If you read this book, it will make you think. It will make you think about things in new ways. And that's probably the most important contribution a book can make. Right. Hayek may be one of the most important influences on my thinking, and I believe he got half of everything wrong. But it doesn't matter, because the insights and the questions and the things that he brought up are what stimulate your thoughts. So I regard this book as very, very valuable because it is seminal. It will start you thinking about interesting things. Now, this has nothing to do with John. I mean, he, doesn't get to, he didn't get to pick the cover. But on the cover of the book, there's a blurb. And uh, you can't read the words, but it says, one of the very best philosophical treatments of libertarian thought ever. In my opinion, that's unfortunate. I, I don't agree with this. It's not because it's not a good treatment. It's that this book, in my opinion, is not a treatment of libertarian thought. If you change one word, if you change libertarian to Rawlsian, I would then agree with the statement. This is probably one of the best philosophical treatments of Rawlsian thought. And my comments, at least at first, will try to explain why I believe that. In fact, I'll say this outright. I think, with the exception of chapters two and five, that this is a brilliant book. Right. <laughs> Obviously, I'm going to talk about two and five. But, Those are my theses. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I'm going to say there's some flaws. I'm going to say the flaws are minor compared to the contribution. I think this is a brilliant book. In my opinion, the book contains a brilliant, imminent critique of Rawlsian political philosophy, what John calls high liberalism. An imminent critique means you accept the values and the premises of the party you're addressing, and you show that when they reason correctly from those premises and values, they'll come to a conclusion other than the one that they now hold. And that's a really valuable thing to do. Um, some of, I can see, some people in the room are, like me, old enough to remember reading Rawls's theory of justice for the first time when we didn't know where it was going to end up. Right. And if you can remember that experience, and it was like mine, you start reading the book and your first impression is, this is really cool. This is great stuff. And then somewhere around the middle of the book, your impression has changed to, how did we get here? Right. How did this go so wrong? I mean, think about Rawls's approach, you read his book in the early chapters, it's important to protect the liberty that's necessary to lead personally meaningful lives first. You have to protect that. Only after that do you move on to social welfare concerns. And in fact, they're lexically ordered. You can't trade off liberty in order to gain material gains. And this is an approach that, John Burnett, this is an approach that Hayek could love, and in fact he did. Right? So, the approach seems perfectly sensible. So how do you get from that to where Rawls ends up, which is the concept of a very, very thick welfare state? I think that John does a great job of explaining where Rawls goes wrong. And it's that Rawls has a very impoverished conception of liberties. Liberties are protected first. The liberties that are required to lead a meaningful life. But his idea of what those liberties are, and in fact, I go back when I think, the fact that he calls them liberties rather than liberty is revealing, but he has an impoverished concept of these liberties. And typically, 
they don't include a commitment to economic liberty. A nice thing about reading this book is John makes it really clear that most of us spend most of our life in the private sector. And for a lot of us, it's our work that gives our lives meaning. Looked at the real world, the freedom to vote would pale in comparison to the freedom to start a small business that would provide a, a better life for our family and children. And the liberty to engage in this kind of economic activity is constitutive of what makes us have meaningful lives. If we are interested in people as responsible self-authors, as John says, then these liberties have to be things that are recognized. So the book shows that economic liberty has to be on the list of what's protected for citizens to be responsible self-authors. Also, the book does a wonderful job of giving an account of Hayek's spontaneous order and the way markets work. I mean, if you are really committed to the difference principle, you've got to be committed to a well-functioning market if you're going to actually improve the condition of the worst off. Now, maybe I shouldn't do this, but since I'm commenting on an academic book that is cool enough to have a footnote to the Marvel comic X-Men in it, uh, I'll make a, I'll, there's a footnote to the X-Men. Um, I'll draw an analogy to the most recent Star Trek movie, for those of you that have seen it. But in my opinion, what John is doing is he's taking a tired and sort of intellectually spent political philosophy, he's taking it back in time through a wormhole to where it started to you know, reinvigorate it. What this book does that's really useful is John is telling us how to get Rawls right. Now, Rawls didn't get Rawls right, but John's going to tell us how to get Rawls right. The great value of the book is that for those that operate within a Rawlsian paradigm, for those, for the high liberals, this book will require them to take the commitment to liberty and specifically economic liberty seriously. Uh, for the last 40 years, the high liberals' main strategy for dealing with the insights of classical liberalism have, has been either to ignore it or mischaracterize it. By accepting the Rawlsian framework, John accepts the Rawlsian framework and arguing from within it, and by bringing classical liberal insights into the high liberal framework, John's made it impossible for high liberals to pursue this strategy anymore. For high liberals to ignore John's argument would be to show the bankruptcy of their own. But they will. <laughs> well, we'll see. Okay, well, it's okay. No, 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 it's okay if they ignore it and thereby show the bankruptcy of their own. That would be fine. Um, in my opinion, in my opinion, this is a major achievement, and that's why you should read the book, and I recommend the book to you for this reason. I have some criticisms of the book, but it's not on this point. I mean, in the book, uh, the criticisms I have are ones that are probably relevant for the Cato Institute, so I'll go on to that. But John claims to be addressing both sides across the frozen sea. He's not just addressing the high liberals. He's addressing the high liberals. If you take your own values and premises seriously, here's what you should think about. That's important. He also says he's addressing the people on the other side. He wants to address libertarians and classical liberals. And that's what he does in chapter five and a little bit in chapter two. Um, I, in that respect, with regard to this side of things, personally, I find the book a little disappointing. And I'll try to point out why. Um, to some extent, I think that John just, get, John just gets off on the wrong foot in chapter two. Right, think about this. What's the most effective way 
to alienate serious libertarian scholars. That would be to mischaracterize their position, then destroy the straw man that one has erected in its place. Right? The reason why that's so annoying is because that's the way the left has been dealing with libertarians for the last 40 years. On the occasions when the left cannot ignore libertarian thought, what they do is mischaracterize it and then destroy a straw man. And I'll tell you, it's infuri infuriating to have one's carefully thought out position identified with the most unreasonable interpretation of Nozick or Rand and then dismissed. But I think John's characterization of libertarianism borders on this. And so it's going to be alienating to many of us. I have up here John's definition of libertarianism. Right, libertarianism, a doctrine that grounds unyielding rights of property in a moral idea of persons of, as self-owners. Same thing, libertarians employ foundationalist or naturalistic forms of argument. Uh, um, I'm not sure, but if this is the definition of libertarian, I don't think there are any libertarian scholars. And I'm pretty sure there are no living ones. There may be, there might be a lot of, I think there are a lot of libertarian teenagers. I think there may be a lot of libertarian undergraduates, but I don't know of any serious scholars who fit this definition. I know, I, I always thought I was libertarian, and I know I don't fit this definition. Uh, but apparently I, I may be a classical liberal, and classical liberals are, I think, the good guys in, uh, in John's story. Defining libertarianism as an unreasonable position that nobody actually holds is a poor way to make inroads into libertarian thinkers. I'd say it's a good way of getting the high liberals to take what you say seriously. Because since this is the way they characterize libertarians, if you characterize libertarians in this way, then you sound like one of them. And maybe you'll gain credibility in their eyes. But this, I think this gets us off sort of on the wrong foot. That's just a, this may be a semantic matter. It might be easily curable. I think there's a more serious problem with the book. That's in chapter five. And the real problem is chapter five, that's where John sets out to cure what he described as social justiceitis. That's what the malady that libertarians suffer from. Yeah, we're just resistant to social justice on some kind of principle. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, the problem with chapter five, I believe, is that the chapter does not contain an argument for the conclusion that John needs. Right, what he wants to do, he sets this out. Um, yeah, what he wants to do is convince libertarians to accept social justice as the ultimate standard of political evaluation. That's his goal. He's got, he lays out a distributional adequacy condition, which he defines as a defense of any version of liberalism is adequate only if it includes the claim that the institutions being endorsed are deemed likely to bring about some desired distribution of material and social goods. That's in general. He makes it more specific a little bit later, and his version is more specific than this. But he states that institutional regimes should be evaluated in terms of how those systems are expected to affect the interests of the working poor. So that's his goal. That's where he wants to get us to. And he does some interesting things in the chapter. John reviews the work of all leading libertarian and classical liberal thinkers to show that they write as though the material condition of the poor 
is uh, an important consideration. I think he establishes that virtually all of them, all of us consider the material condition of the poorest to be a morally relevant factor in evaluating a political system. But showing that the material condition of the poor is a morally relevant factor doesn't show that it's the essential determinative factor. And it doesn't show that it's the ultimate standard of political evaluation. There's, there's also a wonderful thing in chapter five worth reading. John does a, a sophisticated and interesting analysis of Hayek's thought. He gave you a little bit of it a moment ago to show that Hayek's position is not incompatible with social justice. And what he's pointing out is don't confuse the social, the justice of distribution with the justice of the system as a whole. That's really worthwhile. And he shows that Hayek's thinking is not incompatible with social justice. But showing that Hayek's position is not incompatible with social justice does not show that social justice is the ultimate standard of political evaluation. On my reading, I can't find an argument in the chapter that leads to these conclusions. I think John doesn't provide an argument to show that maximizing the personal wealth of the poor is the ultimate standard of evaluation of a liberal political system. Now, despite, despite the way John defines libertarians, I still consider myself a libertarian. I also consider myself open-minded. Others may not, but I genuinely am. <laughs> and I read the book, ready to be persuaded. I, mean, I, was, I would have been happy to be persuaded. I read the book, ready to be persuaded. I was not persuaded. I remain fairly convinced that maximizing the holdings of the least well-off citizens can't be the ultimate purpose of a liberal political system because I remain convinced that the way the poor obtain their holdings is at least, if not more important, than how great their holdings are. Now, I can't give you a sophisticated philosophical argument that leads to that conclusion. That belief on my part may be derived entirely from nothing more than a story my uncle told me at the end of his life. Because I grew up in a middle, you know, sort of a typical middle class existence. What do I know about poverty? So toward the end of my uncle's life, he used to tell stories about what it was like early in the 20th century, growing up in the poor commun immigrant communities in Brooklyn. And one of his stories that I remember is, He's in elementary school when it's getting near Christmas time, and that's the time when, as he used to put it, the Christian ladies with hats would come to his school and they would do their charity work. And he remembers being in school and having the Christian ladies with hats come in and say, does anybody need some new clothes? And he looked down at the rags he was wearing and he said, yeah, me, and he raised his hand. He raised his hand, so he took his name and he went home. And a couple of weeks go by and he tells the story He's at home and there's a knock on the door and he sees his mother answer the door and the Christian ladies with hats are out there. And he, you know, it's Morris Hasnes here. And he hears his mother say, no, you have the wrong house. Go away, sends him away. He doesn't know what's going on. Later on, his father comes home and he sees his mother talking to his father. And then all my uncle's stories ended with the same line, which was, and then I got a beating. <laughs> but what his father was teaching him was, his father taught him, it's, it's not shameful to be poor. There's nothing degrading about you. nothing shameful about being poor. We'll take care of that, we deal with that. What's shameful is to ask the Gentiles for help. That's not the way you get out of poverty and we don't do that. We will pull ourselves up and that was the story. The story Michael was being taught was, what you have is not as important as how you get it. Uh, so 
that's perhaps the nub of my disagreement with John. I'll sum it up with three propositions. I'll illustrate three, three things from the book which show where I disagree. Okay. There's this. There's a statement from John's book. So the institutions of a free society must be justifiable to all classes of citizens, including the most poor. This requires that the basic political and economic structures be designed so as to ensure that all groups benefit. I think the second sentence does not follow from the first. I, might, I could be convinced that there is a sentence that follows from the first. That would be this one. This requires that the basic political and economic structures be designed so as to ensure that all groups have the opportunity to benefit. That might be necessary in order for the structure to be justified. But for all groups actually to benefit, I don't think that follows from the first sentence. So that's one point of disagreement. Right, here's a second point. Um, John says, liberal, libertarians and classical liberals. This may be due to what I think is his mischaracterization of libertarian position. But libertarians and classical liberals justify those economic freedoms in a way that makes them incapable of responding officially to the great ills that sometimes befall a person or whole classes of persons through no fault of their own. I don't think that's accurate. Um, I think there's something else at work when libertarians and classical liberals are resistant to helping people who suffer through no fault of their own. And it might simply be that we've read our Bastiat, <laughs> and we understand the difference between the seen and the unseen. And sometimes helping people who are in trouble and are visible has downstream effects that we don't always consider, which will produce harm to others or cause more poverty in the future. And if you consider the unseen as well as the seen, you refrain from taking certain steps. And it might also be that we understand the concept of Pareto optimality which means at some point you're in a condition in which if you make, try to make things better for one person, you can't do it without making it worse for someone else. And in that world, it's still not a perfect world. Each individual can see how they're in need. Each individual can see how you can be better off. But at some point, the effort to perfect the world actually makes things worse. And this can be an account of why libertarians and classical liberals have the position that they have. All right, the last point. This, according to free market fairness, which is John's position, a fair share is the greatest possible bundle of real worth, wealth that might be procured for, by, the least fortunate, consistent with respecting the rights of other citizens. This may be my biggest point of disagreement. That's that little... Favorite sentence. Yeah, it's my favorite sentence, too, because it's the little parenthetical by. <laughs> right. By is not a parenthetical. Yeah. By is the difference between night and day in this. My disagreement is, if you take the buy out, I might disagree with John. If you keep the buy in, then I might agree with him. It's not, you don't judge things by how much can be procured for the least fortunate. That I wouldn't agree with. Should you judge things by how much could be procured by the least fortunate, then I might be in agreement. So here, I think that that's a major difference. And I'll stop and we can entertain your questions. <laughs>